Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. McDonald's is really interesting because there's this whole controversy uh, of the last couple weeks in which someone posted a video of the uh, of the McDonald's in Kiev and it was bustling in the evening and young people were walking all around and it was operating very normally and it looked like any other metropolitan uh, European McDonald's. And uh, a lot of opponents to Ukrainian aid seized on that video. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today I am talking with uh, a guy who is perhaps my favorite Substack author right now, Tim Mack. He is the author of The Counteroffensive, and he is doing on-the-ground reporting currently in Ukraine. Uh, he's based out of Kiev, but he is traveling all over the country doing human interest stories, little profiles, scenes of life. He is the author of The Counteroffensive, and he is doing on-the-ground reporting currently in Ukraine. Uh, he's based out of Kiev, but he is traveling all over the country doing human interest stories, little profiles, scenes of life. Uh, from a country, obviously, that, you know, is living under very unusual and trying circumstances these days. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned to Tim, I think Substack sometimes gets a bad rap as being a place where people just kind of offer up half-baked hot takes or contrarianism. And that is not what Tim is doing. Um, he is the real deal doing on-the-ground war reporting. Um, he's not just covering bangs and booms. He's covering people in Ukraine. And so in the course of our conversation, we talk a little bit about life in Kiev. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, just what it's like living in a war zone, some of the people that he's been profiling and talking to. Uh, we talk a bit about the, the new edition of his newsletter, which just came out uh, here on Wednesday, which is about a French fighter who he did a little interview with or one of the reporters that he works with did an interview with who is traveling from France through Kiev to the front lines and you know, just sort of scenes of life like that. So hopefully it will be enlightening for you to hear about what's going on these days in Ukraine, what morale in the country is like, and a little bit about the politics there, and also what Ukrainians are saying about U.S. politics, as Ukraine obviously remains a very live issue in the context of current politics and also the 2024 presidential election. Uh, new episodes of the show drop every Thursday. And so if you're listening to this, you can watch the footage on YouTube. I ask people to share the show where you can, uh, leave positive reviews, help me spread the word, and I will be back with another new episode next Thursday. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Tim. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today I am thrilled to be joined by Tim Mack. Tim uh, is an independent journalist currently reporting from Ukraine. Uh, his substack is called The Counteroffensive, and he's doing all sorts of interesting human interest reporting on the war. Um, I did a Q&A with Tim for my newsletter about a month ago, and I think the way you very memorably put it is that you don't cover just the booms and blasts. You cover the people affected by those booms and blasts. And um, I will say your Substack is probably one of the most unique that I subscribe to. You know, Substack sometimes gets kind of a bad reputation for being hot takes or contrarianism, uh, but you put in the work doing, you know, deep reporting on scene in Ukraine. So uh, congratulations on getting the newsletter up and running. Um, Thank you. You know, you, you've already got some guest contributors and are doing a lot of interesting work. And thanks for making time to talk to me today. Yeah, I mean, thanks for highlighting uh, the counteroffensive substack, right? Because we, you know, we have this format where 
we want to see the news through the perspective of, of a single individual or a small group of individuals, right? And so what we do is we do human narrative reporting. And instead of saying, oh, there were blasts in Ukraine overnight or in Kyiv overnight, we see those, we experience those uh, news events through the eyes of people who were there, like a sketch artist or a teacher or someone who's the parent of a prisoner of war. Those are all kinds of examples of how we've been trying to present the news in a kind of more dynamic and human interest kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And I should also mention, Tim was previously at NPR, where you were reporting from Ukraine previously. So it's not like this is your first time there. Um, And when we talked about a month ago, you told me that you actually arrived for the very first time in Ukraine the night before the invasion began. So I'm sure that was quite uh, surreal. I'm guessing NPR sent you there. I mean, obviously, there was a major build up on the border. Um, I probably followed some of the same Twitter accounts that you do, like Rob Lee, uh, who exhaustively you know, documented the movement of troops and military gear toward the border. So it wasn't like it was a huge surprise, although, you know, I remember myself still being very, you know, it was very jarring when the invasion began. But I'm guessing NPR sent you there with the idea being that, you know, it seemed like the invasion was going to happen soon. Yeah, you'll remember in February last year, the United States intelligence com- uh, community was just shouting from the top of every roof that they could find uh, that there was an invasion about to start. And there were a number of NP- really very talented NPR reporters um, in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I just happened to be, happened to be another one of them. Um, you know, I, I, some people might not know about this about me, but I also have a, a background, not just as a journalist, but also as a former soldier and U S army combat medic. Um, and so that kind of gave me some unique perspectives on how to cover the war. Yeah, absolutely. And the title of the Substack again, is called the counteroffensive, which is obviously very timely, these days, with the counteroffensive in Ukraine officially being underway, President Zelensky, I think it was last week, you know, confirmed that it has started. You know, it's one of these situations, even with some of the, the open source accounts that I follow, and I follow many of them who are covering the war, where there's a bit of a fog of confusion, you know, as, off, as is often the case with military, oper- military operations, where it's not exactly clear what's going on. You know, in today's newsletter, which I know you dropped just like a half an hour before we started recording, you had a little bit of an update uh, based on some open source reporting in terms of areas in the south of the country where fighting is occurring. But I thought maybe we could start with just give me an update yeah. as to where the counteroffensive is as far as you can tell. Um, especially if you have any perspective from sources there on the ground that, you know, aren't things that just, you know, myself here in the States or other people who follow online have access to. Yeah, well, so like with with uh, with the style of the counteroffensive, we start the newsletter today, not just talking about military tactics and maneuvering, but we t- start it from the perspective of a particular soldier uh, whose name is Ken Kanaki, and he he's a Frenchman a South Korean origin who uh, has joined the Ukrainian military and is fighting for Ukraine. We caught up with him as he was jo- as he was boarding a train to go ahead to the counteroffensive. Um, and and the, the whole newsletter about, you know, what is happening with the counteroffensive is kind of seen through the eyes of someone headed to the front lines there. In terms of the actual 
developments on the battlefield. There are a number of axes right now where there is fighting. Mostly, there's three axes. The Bakhmut area in eastern Ukraine, uh, this uh, border area between Donetsk and the Zaporizhia regions in southern Ukraine, and then there's this area southeast of the city of Zaporizhia where there's fighting going on as well. And what I'm understanding just from talking to, for example, the Institute for the, uh, for the Study of War, which tracks all the open source information in this, is that we are still in an early stage of this counteroffensive. Um, one of the the analysts for the for the Institute for the Study of War, George Barris, told me that the big fireworks are still to come and that we haven't seen big portions of the Ukrainian military being devoted to one or two or, you know, a small number of these advances. They're still probing. But even though they've been probing, they've been reclaiming about some seven villages representing about 35 square miles uh, over the last week and a half or so. Um, one kind of unique data point that we wanted to highlight is, you know, we we read um, pro-Russian telegram channels to get a sense of what is the attitude on the Russian side. And, you know, we highlighted this one message from a from one chat group that was kind of assuring all the pro-Russian people, hey, uh, if you thought that, you know, this would be this would be easy, it's not going to be that easy. Yeah. And um, it, it seems like that's a pretty good sign for the, yeah. the Ukrainians. Well, it, yeah, you know, reading that a screen cap that you included from the pro-Russia Telegram channel. I mean, there was a little bit, I would say, of there was a note of like cautious optimism from the Russian standpoint of basically, you know, the, the lines are holding. Yes, they've they've gained some ground, but we're we're still doing OK. Mm-hmm. I, I would guess, though, that um, that can be, you know, there's also, you know, kind of weaponized information in the sense that there could be propaganda you know, included in some of these Telegram channels or, you know, it's not necessarily accurate an accurate source of information well, I think that the might be important spin. context yeah. on this right is is that this this channel in particular is like almost universally like rah rah pro russia you know like our forces are winning our forces are holding and so this kind of you know um uh this kind of more pessimistic uh message um, where they say, quote, the initiative was and still remains with the enemy who calculated the forces and means for successful breakthrough of our front. This is an unusual message for a pro-Russian uh, huh. telegram channel. Huh. So I, I guess maybe I should have included a little bit more context there that like when you see like a propaganda channel suddenly say, oh, guys, don't worry so much. You think, wow, they, you know, things must be really bad for them to have to, you know, start to reassure their audience. Yeah. Because I suppose it's also, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's also the case that I'm not seeing a lot of reporting like from the front necessarily. Um, And that gets back into, you know, we we have to rely on open source information, social media, um, because I think it would be easier to understand the state of the counteroffensive if there were actual, you know, I'm sure there are some, but they aren't at least, you know, percolating up to the level where I'm seeing them. And so it does kind of create this fog of confusion. But as you said, you know, it sounds like maybe it's still a little bit too early on in the counteroffensive to draw conclusions about how it's going. You know, if this really poses some sort of mortal threat to Russia's positions in Ukraine. And so, you know, it seems like some patience is warranted there. Yeah, this thing could go on for weeks or, or months. Uh, that's what yeah. um, French President Macron said. Um, and I think there's there's a very good chance that's the case. I mean, that that this counteroffensive is being conducted not out of necessarily, you know, political or sorry, not necessarily because of military requirements, um, but because of political pressure. 
from sure. many of Ukraine's allies uh, in the West who are saying, we've given you all this aid, we've given you all this money, we've given you all these weapon systems, and we need you to show us something in return for that so that we can kind of domestically explain exactly why we've been spending so much on the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And, and I do want to talk about the politics uh, a little bit later, but I want to ask you one last thing on Can, who is the French fighter that you had a little mini profile of in your newsletter today. Um, you caught up with him at a train station. Like you said, he was headed toward the front. And I know you went to some lengths to protect his identity. The The photos you know, were kind of of like a side profile or um, his body. You couldn't see his his face, you know, just trying to, to make sure that he's protected to the extent that you can be when you're heading to the front of an active war zone. But I was curious, I mean, were you just kind of posted up at the train station looking for soldiers traveling or how, how in the first place do you connect with someone like him to do an interview in the first place? So this was a team effort done by myself, Joseph, who was one of our uh, one of the folks who writes with us and Ross Pelek. And Joseph was the one who interviewed um, Khan. And he's a, uh, he, uh, Joseph is a, is a guy of uh, of uh, uh, French descent uh, and nationality and has been really interested in soldiers who have been uh, of, of, from France and and fighting in Ukraine and caught up with him uh, at the train station as he was about to leave. So it wasn't a coincidence or anything. It was something where we really were interested in this particular story mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so caught up with him to do the interview right as he was leaving. Yeah. What, what is the extent of the presence of fighters like him from other countries in Ukraine. I'm guessing Kyiv mm-hmm. is kind of like a, you know, a through point for a lot of them traveling to the front. So I'm sure it's not highly unusual to encounter fighters traveling from other countries heading toward the front in Kyiv. But, um, you know, I guess maybe a little bit more background here is with Can. With you said in your piece that um, he basically didn't have any contacts at all in the country, right? I mean, he basically showed up um, and by the time that that you all talked to him, did he know like what military formation he would be working with, or was he mm-hmm. was he just headed there? Kind of, he had already he had already spent some time fighting with the with a bunch of other French fighters in Ukraine, and they Got have it. a unit where they go on the radio and uh, try to troll uh, Russians by speaking in French. Um, so he's already spent some time here over the last few months. Uh, the counteroffensive will not be his first uh, experience in combat in in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it, 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 this chaotic entry into Ukraine has has been the story of thousands of people who have just wanted to show up and either volunteer and work on humanitarian issues or to, you know, work on the military side and, uh, you know, for example, join the Ukrainian foreign agent. Yeah. And and there are American uh troops there as well who are not obviously through the you know they're not they're u.s military troops necessarily but but is there like an organized group of americans fighting as part of these foreign forces or is it a little more ad hoc than that uh there are organized uh americans fighting together in the foreign legion yes oh. um and um they're not uh current active duty uh u.s military um i i haven't met any but uh, there are plenty with former u.s military experience that are now out here uh, fighting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When when we talked about a month ago, um, at that point, Kiev was under nightly bombardment. And in one of your first counteroffensive newsletters, you actually embedded an audio file that was from where you were staying that night. You know, it was a very jarring piece of audio because you could hear loud explosions. 
um, which I assume are the air defense systems, you know, shooting down missiles. And then I believe you were tweeting a bit after that. Um, I'm not sure if this made it into your newsletter or not, just the the struggle from night to night to get some sleep, to get rest and just be a functional human the next day. Uh, what, what is the state of affairs at this point? Has has the nightly bombardment subsided a little bit? And just what are your reflections on what that does to a person, you know, night after night, having to endure kind of like existential dread uh, going to sleep? Uh, what kind of toll does that take? Well, um, a few things. In, in, in May, uh, more nights there were bombings than not. And it, it was a real departure from from previous months because the intensity was was quite high. And so that meant a lot of interrupted sleep. Um, maybe I won't talk about how I felt about it. Maybe I'll talk about how the folks I've been talking to feel about it. It feels very personal. Not merely that Putin is attacking Ukraine. It's like Putin is attacking me. Like I am personally terrorized. I cannot go to sleep. I am being woken up at three o'clock in the morning by an air alarm. And then I have to stay up until five or six o'clock in the morning. And as you can imagine, people are a little grumpy, a little angry, a little frustrated. Um, and uh, well, is it, let, that let me really ask you, impacts things. Yeah. Let me ask you in that note. So, so, you know, you hear an, an air defense uh, siren sounding. Um, is the standard protocol basically for everyone if you are, you know, if you're above ground, essentially, um, is the standard protocol basically to retreat to the nearest shelter? I mean, I'm sure there are some people who take their chances, but um, like what what are kind of the social norms surrounding, you know, just these when Kiev is under bombardment, how do people respond to that? Yeah, everyone has their own standard, right? Um, it's like, uh, well, just think of it in terms of like in the U.S. when the Fire alarm goes off. How uh, in your apartment? How urgently do you run for the stairs? Uh, it's well, it's yeah. a very similar. It's a very yeah. similar thing, right? Like it's like uh, you know, if you, if there were like, you know, if it was like every two nights in your apartment building there was a fire alarm, you might consider twice whether you were going downstairs every single time. You might go online and look at some of the Telegram groups that have gotten pretty good at open source information to look at. Well, hey, you know, forty five minutes ago. Some you know a very very abnormally large barrage is was is headed towards Kiev where I am right now. I probably ought to do something about it. Or other times it will be like you know this it's a you know a below average um, barrage is is likely to be incoming. You know it's it's very case by case and and different people have different uh, risk tolerances. There's some people who react to every single siren. And they'll go to the bomb shelter. Some people will go into, you know, an interior hallway uh, without without windows, and and they'll think that that is sufficient. Other people will go into the parking lot, uh, so the parking garage, underground parking garage. Um, everyone has their own method. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of blows my mind. I mean, I'm I'm someone I'm not obviously a, a veteran like you are, um, but I've you know I've I've read a fair amount of history about military conflicts, and I know a fair amount about how military conflicts work, and just the fact that these air defenses now are so good where, you know, um, that, you know, the numbers are usually like, you know, Russia will fire off like a dozen missiles towards Kiev and, and, you know, in many cases, all of them will be intercepted, you know, maybe one or two will get through, but, um, you know, just the sophistic, the sophistication of these systems that they're capable of doing that is, it just kind of blows my mind. Now, is that the case? I'm sure Kiev is the most heavily fortified as far as that goes, but, you know, is, is that kind of the norm in, in a lot of large cities in Ukraine or is Kiev kind of the 
you know, um, the exception in terms of having these, you know, really incredible air defense systems? No, I mean, there have been, um, there have been strikes all across, all across this country. Yeah. Um, from Western Ukraine in cities like Lviv to Northeastern in cities like Kharkiv to the Southern port city of Odessa. Um, I, I'm not sure I've heard of a major city in Ukraine that's been spared that this sort of experience. Now, oh, no, it no. ebbs and flows yeah, in yeah, terms no. of, um, go ahead. No, no, I'm aware that I'm, I'm just asking specifically on the on the the missile defense part of it. Um, yeah. You know, is that something like if, if you were in Odessa, do they have a similarly sophisticated mm-hmm. system that that could take out these missiles? You know, they do. They I can't quantify that for yeah. you, but yeah. but uh, the, the air defense is working. There are air defense systems all across this country. And so that's why, you know, that's why uh, I would say that this the situation in Kiev is, is very similar to. Um, the situations in, in other major cities across Ukraine, that the Ukrainians have made it a major kind of strategic goal to reduce civilian casualties around the major cities. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned before we started recording that you wanted to talk a bit about McDonald's, um, you know, and and that was actually I a have, little... I have a, I, I have a, filet, a, a Ukrainian filet of fish right here. It's 530. I have not had lunch yet. Oh, okay. I'll have this cold, I'll have this cold filet of fish to look forward to after our conversation. I feel bad. I mean, feel free. You know, I, I, it, you know, the, the footage is on YouTube. It's not I don't your know fault. It's not your fault. I don't know if that's going to make for the uh, most. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to be. Well, I don't. Look, I, it I was is not say. an appetizing looking sandwich at this moment. You know, you had like, like the with the fries with McDonald's fries. You have to eat them immediately, otherwise they kind of cool down and get kind of gross. Yeah, and but and fish it's is food, fi- right? Fish um, is tough to microwave as well. But but you did actually mention in your newsletter today that. Um, mm-hmm. McDonald's was actually, you know, victimized by a strike in Odessa. Um, right. But um, I'm guessing for someone like you, if you're you're traveling around the country quite a bit, um, you know, I, I guess there is that similarity with living in the West where McDonald's is probably something that you can count on in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, on the highway, you know, like yeah. uh, when you're driving places, there are a ton of McDonald's on the side. Of the road. Yeah. 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 Little sidebar. What are, what are some of the what are some of the um, menu items on a McDonald's menu there that here in the States we might not be familiar with? It's pretty standard, actually. I mean, I don't, okay. I don't think that I could, I can think of anything. They might have like potato pancakes here. Okay, um, that's a little different. But I, I guess that, that that's part of the it's beauty. It's pretty of it. standard. Yeah. Um, they don't give out ketchup typically. They charge for ketchup. Oh that's, wow, that's that's uh, okay. that's what well, I that... uh, that's what I've learned here in Ukraine. <laughs> that'd be um, that'd be an adjustment. But look, the thing that McDonald's is really interesting because there's this whole controversy uh, of the last couple weeks. In which someone posted a video of the uh, of the McDonald's in Kiev, and it was bustling in the evening, and young people were walking all around, and it was operating very normally, and it looked like any other metropolitan uh, European McDonald's. And uh, a lot of opponents to Ukrainian aid seized on that video to say, "I want my taxpayer money back, please." Hmm. Um, and then the pro-Ukrainian people came in and started a bit of a meme war about, you know, about what it looked like at their McDon- at their local McDonald's. Um, but like, there's this there's this situation here in Ukraine where um, where it, it, there's these nightly bombardments, and then there's a McDonald's that works, and you can get a fillet of fish. Yeah, you know, it's like it's hard for me to explain to a lot of folks who haven't been here that you can get an espresso if you want to in in a war in this war zone yeah and uh, you can get a, a big mac too 
Um, and then everyone tries as best as they can to, to, to live life almost as no, as normal, normally as possible. And then everyone retreats to their apartments and the bombardment happens again in the evening. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned when we talked about a month ago that in Ukraine right now, it's possible to you know be reporting from the front lines in the afternoon and having sushi in the evening in a, in a major yeah. city because, um, you know, from Kiev to where some of these active fronts are, I mean, what that's probably like a three or four hour train trip, I would guess. Um, it's, it's not like it's a little bit further than that, yeah. a little bit further okay. than that. It'll probably take you most of the day. Um, okay. If you left really early in the morning, you could probably drive to, you know, um, one of the front lines by the by the evening. Yeah. But I, I would assume that once you got there, someone in your position uh, and you, you touched upon this a little bit when we talked last month that you need certain credentialing to mm-hmm. actually do reporting there. Um, so I'm assuming that probably as you got closer, there'd be some checkpoints or something like that. Yeah, there there'd be a lot of checkpoints, um, and they have. I mean, you you talked earlier about how there's been a dearth of reporting from the front lines. Um, th- th- there's been very little interest uh, from the Ukrainian authorities to allow reporters right up to, close to the to where the the, the fighting is happening at this yeah. moment. Um, they, they've instituted a series of zones, and and when you get closer to the front lines, it's it's known as a red zone where you can't uh, where you can't get in, you can't report. Yeah. And and that's actually one of the, uh, you know, w- when you're following open source information about the war, you know, accounts like Rob Lee's or these other people who are, you know, the, the Intel crab is another one who are kind of mining social media, uh, telegram channels to bring information about the war. You end up seeing a lot of content that is more slanted toward the Ukrainian side in the sense that. The, you know, you don't really see, you don't necessarily see the Ukrainian tanks being blown up. Sometimes you do, but the stuff that tends to make it onto a lot of these Telegram channels or percolate up to these open source channels are strikes on Russian um, troops. Or well, this gear. is why you have to have you have to have like an eye on the pro-Russian channels right. too, yeah, um, because that's where they'll show that's where they show that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and so the the pro-Russian channels. Uh, you know, with a with a pinch of salt, you, you want to keep it track. Yeah. Um, you know, as as you're probably aware, um you you know, news from Ukraine has, at least here in the States, kind of been pushed off the front pages this week over the Trump indictment. Um, but uh, you know, an aspect of this as Republicans try to defend Trump is rehashing some of the Burisma allegations against Biden and kind of the the corruption in the Ukrainian corruption, the Hunter Biden business dealings. Uh, stuff. So, you know, it, it, it does make it into the news even this week, kind of in that context. But mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are, you know, people that you talk to in Ukraine, you know, whether they be English speakers or people that your fellow reporters that you're working with are talking to, you know, what what are their thoughts, if any, on U.S. politics? I mean, it seems like Ukraine is going to be a very live issue, this campaign cycle, in the sense that, you know, Trump has made pretty clear, you know, he, he's out there saying that he would, he would, he would find a way to implement a ceasefire within 24 hours, which, you know, given his background, with Putin seems to be code for, you know, he would push for Zelensky to start negotiating some sort of ceasefire, which would probably result in occupation of part of Ukraine by Russian forces in all likelihood. Um, so, you know, it's a very live issue in the sense that this next presidential election, if Putin can hold out that long, you know, could really be to his benefit if Trump or even another Republican wins. And so is that something that Ukrainians are thinking about or concerned about? Or is it just more obviously when you're in an active war zone, you have more immediate things to be worried about than an election that happens, you know, 16 months from now? 
I, I've had a few conversations with Ukrainians asking me, you know, this sort of question. What do you think is going to happen with Trump? And what do you think is going to happen with the next presidential election? But if I'm doing my math right, there's been uh, there's more time between now and the next presidential election than there has been over the course of the war so far. It's, it's pretty the, it's the about halfway invasion. Yeah. Um, so it's a long way off. Like, you know, the whole conduct of the, the war to date would have to be doubled by the time, you know, um, uh, by the time uh, the, the, the federal elections in, in, in um, the national elections in the U.S. happen in in 24. Yeah. Um, and so and so it is a long way off. And there is a lot of stuff to be done, including the ongoing counteroffensive before uh, before worrying too much about about what happens in, in 2024. I think yeah, yeah. I think that's what folks are focused on right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we wind it down here, I just I also wanted to ask you kind of broadly what uh, morale is like in Ukraine. I mean, obviously, you know, this war has been going on for 16 months. We already talked about. You know, what What that even, you know, the challenges that presents just in terms of getting good night's sleep, let alone kind of the mortal danger, you know, of um, airstrikes happening, um, you know, just the, the day-to-day uncertainty that comes in stress that comes with living in a war zone. That obviously takes a toll on people over time. But now there's this counteroffensive happening and there's a lot of, you know, not, not just in the West here in the States, but I'm sure in Ukraine as well, a lot of hopes tied up with that, you know, that this will represent a turning point and, you know, push Russian forces back. So what's kind of, you know, it's, it's a tough thing I, I understand to kind of generalize about, but um, is it your sense that morale is still pretty strong to keep fighting in Ukraine? And, you know, as kind of a, a branch of this question is, you know, what what are people's thoughts at this point about Zelensky? He's become kind of this heroic figure, you know, among certain circles, at least, you know, the circles that I travel in kind of liberal, you know, li- liberal Democrats um, in the West. Um, but I could imagine attitudes are a little more complex about him in Ukraine um, where, you know, he's more of a known figure. He's not known that, you know, he was known prior to this. Uh, he was already present before the invasion occurred. And there's, you know, some, some context there that maybe we don't see day to day, just following the headlines here in the West. So, so the morale question, and then also what are attitudes like about Zelensky there? Well, l- yeah, let's start with the morale question. I-, I think there's no doubt that the morale is as high as it's ever been. I mean, there's, there's, and, and I want to say like the, the morale, a lot of it is, is, you know, from its foundation, it's, it's based on anger and outrage and just, I, I, I think of the war as a pre-Bucha and post-Bucha era, right. Or having both eras that, that, you know, at the beginning, everyone was afraid and uncertain, but, after it's become clear just how brutal Russian forces have been in their occupation of Ukraine and how many atrocities have occurred on Ukrainian soil, it's not really even an issue of morale as, a, as an issue of justice. Uh, you know, I don't go and see people saying, oh boy, how, how, uh, how motivated am I today to continue the prosecution of this war? Um, it's much deeper embedded in the in the bone marrow of people this terrible terrible anger and 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 need for accountability and to defeat russian forces in this country um you could say that's very high morale you could say that's deeply motivated and i'd I'd agree with that um uh but i kind of it's it's with a twist right because it's not merely morale it's not merely motivation or folks feeling encouraged it's this deep 
foundational existential um, uh, motivation that 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 drives them. Um, so that's my feeling on on morale. And and you you know, the Ukrainians will want to fight for far longer than their Western allies would be comfortable with. Uh, I would say, unless they unless they manage to to pull off uh, some dramatic moves in the south and east and and push Russians out of of much of the country, um, uh, you know the Ukrainians, uh, you know, just do not feel like there's any room for negotiation. Um, yeah. And it, you know, if we're talking about morale, they're going to continue on with it. Yeah. Um, on Zelensky, you know, Ukraine, like like many countries where people are free. Um, has a long history of people uh, complaining about their political leadership, right? Constantly. Mm -hmm. and, and there's when I'm asked this question, I I, I, um, I think of a conversation I had with someone in Dnipro, uh, which is a more kind of uh, uh, central Ukrainian city where uh, folks are more likely to speak Russian. Uh, Pre-war were uh, less pro-Zelensky. And I spoke to this one artist, who uh, does work in, in the Russian language. And he said, look, I didn't vote for Zelensky, but I've been so blown away by how he's united this country and how he's, uh, how he's stood up for everyone and his personal courage when his life was threatened and he refused to leave. I'm just blown away by his fortitude and his strength and his leadership. And then he kind of lets a beat pass. He says, but I wouldn't vote for him next time. He wouldn't then, vote for him next time. Oh. He wouldn't vote for him next time. Wow. And I think that's like a like this is like a classic kind of Ukrainian and political opinion, right? Um, well, let, let me ask you. you uh, yeah, let, let me ask you on that note because so so Zelensky was elected in 2019, right? So um, is it a six year term that he has? Um, you're putting me on the spot here. I know that elections are uh, are scheduled soon, but because of martial law and the war. Um, we uh, will not be able to. I, I don't think that the press or or the Ukrainians will be able to observe a normal election cycle. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when the next elections will be held, um, but right now there's it's it's really very much up in the air. Yeah, and, and that makes some sense. I was going to ask if the elections were going forward. You know, I could see there being at least a lane for like a pro-Russian. You know, because there's a there's a rich history of that in Ukraine of pro-Russian yeah, politicians. I, I, I just, not anymore. I mean, you can't, okay. you, you can't, um, uh, the Russians have bombed cities. They have committed terrible war crimes. They have, there's no one that's not affected in Ukraine, whether they speak Russian or not, whether they had some sympathies before the, the full-scale invasion for Russia or not. There are an extremely, very small number of people who would mm -hmm. say that they're pro-Russian in Ukraine. Right now. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, th there was some pro-Russian sentiment even after the initial invasion in 14, though, right? Because, you know, that that was an active issue, even in Zelensky's election, where one of the candidates he defeated was more at least friendly. I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was like a Russian candidate by any means. But um, so, I, you know, I could see that still being like a, a faction. But also, you're right that, you know, just the scale of destruction and devastation. I'm sure no one has been spared in the sense of not knowing someone who's been deeply affected by this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and, you know, Thousands, if not millions of people have been terrorized by the, you know, regular um, campaigns of bombardment um, in Ukraine and and and, you know, everyone's been affected by it. Yeah. 
Um, last thing for you, you mentioned in your newsletter today that you are leaving Ukraine for a brief period of time. Uh, it sounds like the newsletter will continue with uh, some, you know, some other people authoring uh, the pieces in it. Um, what can you tell us about your plans? I don't want to, you know, if, if it's classified yeah, no, information. I, it's always, so when I'm in Ukraine, I work seven days a week and I work like a, like a madman. And, um, and I've been here uh, for, you know, for about a month, month and a half. I, I got to look at my calendar, but it's always been my priority to try to take a break once in a while. I'll still edit the, um, the newsletter. I'll still be working on the Substack. But I'll I'll go to Poland. I'll take a deep breath and try to nice. spend a few days to just decompress. I, I said in the newsletter today that the one thing that I learned about this sort of journalism is that it feels like a lot of the time you are – well, it's true that when you're reporting on the war, you are often speaking to people on the worst day of their entire lives or recalling the worst day of their entire lives. And it feels like you're holding this cup and every person you speak to pours a little bit of their sadness into that cup, you know, and, and it, it's impossible not to be affected by it, right? Like you can't be an empathetic feeling person and not be affected. by it. And so it's always been my priority to try to take some breaks from time to time um, and, and work uh, for, let's say a week or a week and a half or two weeks outside of Ukraine um, while st still trying to, to, to give the kind of, human interest, personal narrative journalism that we, we've been doing, but working with my team to do that. Um, and rather than just it being all me. Yeah. Yeah. Is it still just the very last thing? Cause I'm curious about this. When you re-enter Ukraine, um, you know, you mentioned that there is kind of like a martial law situation there. Does that, does that pose any extra restrictions on re-entering the country? Or are you basically able, you know, just to, to come and go as you please? Actually, uh, martial law is beneficial to me as a journalist because as a journalist, I'm able to uh, to avoid any sort of stay limits, um, you know, before the um, before the full scale invasion, I would have only been able to stay in Ukraine three months out of every six. Um, but that's been waived for journalists because of martial law. Um, and so in that sense, it benefits. me. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, great insight and uh, keep up the good work with the counteroffensive. Um, and I, I won't keep you any longer from your fish fillet there. So uh, enjoy it's, your dinner too. It's as cold now as it was <laughs> when we started this conversation 30 minutes ago. Do oh, you got a microwave in there? You can microwave up. I do, but there. I don't think I'll tempt fate by, uh, by stinking up the, uh, stinking up the apartment that way. I think I'll just I'll just uh, power through. take a deep breath and power through. Yeah. Well, that, you know, all the more reason to look forward to your vacation in Poland, <laughs> where hopefully you'll be eating better stuff than cold McDonald's. So <laughs> thank you. It's really good to talk to you. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in. 